It's my pleasure to uh, introduce our speaker this evening. As an historian and uh, one who in graduate school um, tended to gravitate toward courses on the American Revolution, uh, or colonial America, the American Revolution in the early national period, you can imagine my excitement when I found out that James Madison was going to be speaking tonight. <laughs> well, it is James Madison, uh, another the James Madison, not the author of the Constitution, but uh, Dr. James Madison. We are in the midst of extraordinary changes, as we all know. Scholarship over the last several decades has transformed the way we understand our past. Means and methods of presenting history to audiences are now far removed from dusty cabinets of curiosities. Opportunities for history's entrepreneurs are grander than ever. So are the challenges, which is why traditional methods and skills are no longer sufficient. Nonetheless, there may be value in some practices and visions that motivated the very best of our predecessors. History entrepreneurs from long ago who might inform our 21st century projects. James H. Madison is the Thomas and Catherine Miller Professor of History and former editor of the Indiana Magazine of History. Among his publications are the Indiana Way, a state history, Eli Lilly, a life, a lynching in the heartland, race and memory in America, and slinging donuts for the boys, an American woman in World War II. Professor Madison's teaching has ranged from the freshman introductory history course to courses on Indiana history and on World War II and seminars on automobile culture and on leaders and leadership. His several teaching honors include the Sylvia E. Bowman Distinguished Teaching Award, the James P. Holland Award for Exemplary Teaching, and the IU Student Alumni Association Student Choice Award. He's also taught as a Fulbright professor at, the, uh, at Hiroshima University in Japan and at the University of Kent in Canterbury, England. He is the recipient of the Indiana Historical Society's Hoosier Historian Award and has received uh, and has served as a trustee at Connor Prairie and the Indiana Historical Society. Please join me in wa welcoming Dr. James H. Madison. Thank you, Don, and a warm, warm Hoosier welcome to all of you, and especially to Terry back home again in Indiana. Happy to see you here. Um, it's an honor. I'm delighted to be here tonight to have a small part in, in the purpose of this gathering, and that is to hand out awards to the people in the vineyard of state and local history who have done the heavy, heavy lifting, many of them, for a long, long time. I was asked tonight to talk a little bit about uh, Indiana, to give you some local flavor of this place. I should confess at the very beginning, however, that I was not born here. 
Um, like the Hoosier comedian Herb Schreiner, I, uh, I moved to Indiana as soon as I heard about it. Um, I actually did come a long time ago in the fall of 1966. I got off the train in Union Station, just a block two south of us here. And when I got off that train, I thought that maybe the Russians had dropped the bomb because there was nothing here in the center of the city uh, so long ago. Empty, dead. Very different place today, and I hope you from other places have had a chance to see the transformation in this town and even beyond this town into the state in the last several decades. A key component of that change, that transformation, was the explosive growth of our cultural institutions here in the capital city especially. Along the canal just to the north of us, further away at Connor Prairie and at other points in the state. We Hoosiers are very proud of our progress. We're also very modest, so we have trouble talking about it. But we're very proud of the progress of the last few decades, particularly in our historical, cultural, and art institutions. The future, however, is not so clear or bright, I think, sometimes. It's possible, in fact, that our glory days are over that we're at the end of our golden age here in the 19th state and perhaps elsewhere across this nation. There are a couple of reasons why I have concerns, nothing that will strike you as novel. There's, of course, the immediate economic environment in which we all live and work, the consequences of which I fear will be with us in this business that we're in for many years down the road. We all know about that. There's also this blend of stuff that I'll call simply globalization. I don't mean just the competition for jobs in China or India. I mean the myriad ways in which our lives have become globalized and homogenized in the 21st century. Now, much of that, of course, is a very good thing. But we have created a people who sup at the golden arches, who bend our ears mostly to our cell phones, who pay homage often exclusively only to the immediate and the practical. In our busy, homogenized lives, we have to wonder sometimes if there's much room at all for state and local history. And all the pressure we all deal with for more and more popular culture, more and more fake lore, more and more entertainment. I'm concerned, for example, about the celebration of Indiana's bicentennial in 2016. Hoosiers, I fear, may not show up for our 200th birthday party. Indiana may be like an ice cube melting on an August sidewalk a puddle in which there is little left that is truly Hoosier, little to commemorate, little to celebrate. I suspect, I hope that's not true. I hope you'll come back in a few years and see how we do here in Indiana celebrating our 200th birthday. So there are challenges of the immediate economy and the burdens of globalization and homogenization. What's to be done about all of that? I was told to speak for less than 30 minutes, so I'm not going to answer that question. 
That was the question Lenin asked that began the Russian Revolution, too. So I'm not promising a revolution here, though maybe it's time for a Lenin to come forward. I do believe, I'm much more optimistic than what I've just said suggests, because I believe that this country still has the right stuff. This is the nation that has pioneered in a long tradition of innovation and of entrepreneurship. Clearly in our economic and business institutions, Eli Whitney and Interchangeable Parts and Henry Ford and the Silicon Valley and on and on and on. We live in a time and a place here and now where new ideas and fresh concepts are bubbling forth from the American people, not only in our economic institutions, but in our cultural institutions and from many of the people in this room, including the award winners. We might be in the midst, I suspect we are, of what the old economist Joseph Schumpeter labeled a gale of creative destruction. Creative destruction. We can easily see the destruction inside of this storm all around us as our declining budgets wreck planned exhibitions and projects and reduce staff and restrict our services. We can see the destruction. What's harder to see, but important to see, is that this may be exactly the time to be creative, as most entrepreneurs have long argued. The hammer of destruction obliges us to lift ourselves toward our most creative opportunities. But I'm just a simple historian, and I have no claim to understand the future and sometimes not even the present, so let me flee quickly back to the past, where I feel much more comfortable, and look back to what our predecessors achieved, often with fewer resources and even larger challenges than we may face today and thereby perhaps offer some comfort and some hope for entrepreneurial creativity in our time. And so I have a few case studies to share with you tonight, uh, all from Indiana. And let me begin with a fellow by the name of Howard Peckham, who was head of the Indiana Historical Society and Indiana Historical Bureau from 1945 to 1953, at the time when those two were headed by one person. This is a very strange place, Indiana. I won't try to explain to you why that was that well, the way it was, but it was. Howard Peckham uh, devoted long service to AASLH. In fact, he was the president of this organization in the mid-1950s. He's among my personal top two or three innovators and entrepreneurs in Indiana's institutional history. Let me give you one illustration of Peckham's achievement. In 1950, Indiana decided to celebrate the sesquicentennial of its creation as a territory, 1800. The celebration was planned with no money. The state legislature created a territorial sesquicentennial commission. The governor appointed 22 members and appropriated not a single penny. That is actually the Indiana way of doing things. Um, a long tradition of limited public spending and of hoping in Indiana that good enough will be good enough. Howard Peckham went to work nonetheless. He started with an idea to take 
the state's territorial history to the people of Indiana, rather than exhibit in the capital city or a program in Indianapolis, a traveling exhibit. He investigated first putting a traveling exhibit on a train. That didn't work, though the Indiana Historical Society figured out how to do it brilliantly a few years ago. Then he went to try to do it on a bus, and that didn't work. And finally, he settled on a truck, in part because the Fruhoff Trailer Company provided a brand new moving van, and International Harvester donated a trailer, a tractor, to pull it. He also convinced the governor of the state to assign a state police officer to drive the truck, shell oil to donate the gasoline and oil, and he talked the local chambers of commerce across the state to take responsibility for advertising this traveling exhibit. And so into this specially fitted moving van in 1950, Peckham put the Indiana Constitution of 1816, the original document, the Journal of the Territorial Assembly of 1809, General Anthony Wayne's flag from the Treaty of Greenville in 1795, and a collection of pioneer tools on the inside walls, panels explaining all of this. This Hoosier Heritage Caravan traveled nearly 4,000 miles, stopping in each of the state's 92 counties in 1950 with local programming supplementing the traveling exhibit. It was a great success. In fact, Peckham won ASLH's Award of Merit for the Hoosier Heritage Caravan. One of the many ideas from this fertile brain that he executed with energy and hard work in challenging times with scant resources. Let me give you a different kind of case example, a different kind of leader, one for whom money was not a problem, and this was Eli Lilly, who built the pharmaceutical company just to the south of us that bears his name, actually his grandfather's name, a very, very successful entrepreneur and businessman, but a man not content at all to limit his enthusiasms to making and selling pills. He developed a wide range of historical interests, indeed passions. Lilly played the key role, in fact, in recruiting Howard Peckham to Indiana. Peckham was a young fellow, 34 years old when he came here. The Indiana governor was against appointing Harold, How Howard Peckham uh, because he was a foreigner. He was from Michigan. We used to think that way in Indiana. Uh, we still have a few Hoosiers, I suspect, who think that our president is a foreigner, but that's another story. Lilly telephoned the governor and afterward reported uh, to the Board of Trustees at the Historical Society that the governor is a good sport and finally gave up, and Howard Peckham came to Indiana. Most important, Lilly shared Peckham's enthusiasm for taking history to the people, in fact, long before Peckham showed up, Lilly himself was doing it. Most importantly, beginning in 1934, when he purchased the home of William Connor, just to the north of us in Hamilton County, one of those traditional Indiana pioneer heroes, Mr. Connor, who in, in 1823 built a brick house, one of the first brick houses in central Indiana, but by 1934 that house was falling down. Lilly purchased it, restored it, and jumped himself into the research, the history, the context, gathering furnishings, 
and recreating the pioneer past in the area around the Connor home. And here's the key innovation to share tonight. He figured out, spent a lot of time figuring out how to make Connor Prairie, the site, an educational experience accessible to visitors, including school children. He did all of that while working more than full time as president of the pharmaceutical factory. Now, he's not alone in this. Um, you all know Ford at Greenfield Village and Rockefeller at Williamsburg and others. But for Eli Lilly, this was a true passion that lasted for the rest of his life, intimately and closely involved. Into his 80s, he would visit Connor Prairie and participate in the first-person interpretation, particularly at the Pioneer Schoolhouse and in other ways. So his intellect, his passion, not just his money, created an historical experience that flourishes today. Third case. Third case is a little different. It's the Federal Writers Project. It's a case, an example of innovation and entrepreneurship not by one individual, but by a nation, and by its political and civic leaders, and by tens of thousands of ordinary Americans. The context here, of course, is the New Deal, with its so-called, some said at the time, socialism, programs that included relief agencies such as WPA and CCC and regulatory agencies such as the FDIC and the SEC and many, many other pieces of alphabet soup. Like most historians uh, today, I believe that the New Deal actually saved American-style capitalism from its excesses and left a lasting model for government, for government as an essential force in the well-being of the American people. Among all the sprawling New Deal projects of the 1930s, there was one small agency of immense consequence, short and long term, the Federal Writers Project. Created in the context of a time in which, during the Great Depression, unemployment reached 25%. And unemployment included not just factory workers, but school teachers and journalists and professors and liberal, uh, librarians and museum people and on and on and on, many, many educated, professional, middle-class Americans out of work. The Writers Project offered some of them jobs and a small wage. Among those who worked on the Writers Project were Studs Terkel, who learned how to do oral history, Ralph Ellison, Saul Bellow, Nelson Ogren, and many, many who got their start in various fields, including the field of history. A variety of projects. Um, one of the interesting ones recently were the oral history interviews that the Federal Writers Project did with former slaves in the 1930s. My favorite legacy are the American State Guides, published between 1937 and 1941, one for each of the 48 states. They offer a fascinating portrait of the American people by state and region. I can remember the first time I picked up the Indiana Guide and not knowing very much about where it came from and what it was how astonished I was, how different it was from other things that I had read from this time in Indiana and in America. These guys included local history, but also food and folklore, and even, in many of them, something on racial and ethnic minorities in the particular state. Here we have in the Federal Writers Project and the State Guides and other of its projects an enduring legacy. The guides themselves, I think, are still interesting. Many have been reprinted or revised. Wonderful antidotes to globalization and homogeneity. 
a legacy too here in the creation in the 1960s of NEH and NEA and their separate state councils, government agencies that are carriers of our civilization. I offer these three brief case studies to show that there have been innovators and entrepreneurs before our time, some of the many predecessors in the field of state and local history whose hard work, dedication, fresh ideas, and concepts are part of our legacy. We have them as models. And we have, I think, advantages they did not have. Let me close with some of the assets we have in our own time. The advantages we have today. One is a little prejudicial on my part, but one is scholarship. There were scholars in Peckham's day. There were really good historians in Peckham's day. But I want to remind you of what happened later in the historical scholarship in this country in the 1960s and 70s, particularly with the so-called new social history. The scholarship that opened up areas of race, of gender, of the experiences of ordinary people, as well as of great white men. We found sources, we learned methods and concepts that enable us to tell new stories in exciting ways. Younger colleagues today can hardly imagine what it was like before the new social history of the 60s and 70s when those dusty cabinets of curiosities told only a very, very narrow part of our past. When the brochure that accompanied Peckham's Hoosier history, Hoosier Heritage Caravan had this sentence, with the surge of incoming settlers, land had to be taken from the Indians by forced treaties. End of story. That's all there was to be said. We have scholarship more recently in newer fields, in fields such as memory, individual memory, and public memory, which continue to offer rich opportunities in telling new and old stories. We have new scholarship, too, as you all know, in how people experience history in film and exhibitions and historical societies and books and public events. So we have the advantage of scholarship. We have the advantage of professionalism. ASLH and others have, other organizations have helped create a culture of professionalism, widespread now. The benefits are overwhelming, I need not tell you. The modern-day Peckham, I fear, would not be permitted to put the state's original constitution inside a moving van. <laughs> Nor perhaps would Eli Lilly, even if he owned the house, be permitted to add a porch onto the Connor House simply because he liked the view across the prairie in the evening. The third advantage we have is technology. Maybe the bane of our existence sometimes, but also, of course, our great asset in reaching people, as many of the sessions at this conference have shown. We are clearly in the midst of a revolution here with so many, many opportunities for incorporating fresh concepts and methods. As one example, I invite you back next year to the Indiana Historical Society to walk through three-dimensional photographs of a Terre Haute grocery store in 1945 and of a 1920s auto repair shop in Hartford City to see the many, many other pieces of the new Indiana experience, which is turning the Indiana History Center into a 21st century learning experience of, I think, I hope, world-class dimensions.
Our fourth advantage is education. We are, I think, a smarter people, more sophisticated, more global across this nation. All those baby boomers, our great, great hope for the future, who are just discovering history, as well as those fourth graders whose, key, whose fingers are worn from pressing keys. Our challenge is to hook them all, just as it was in Peckham's day and in Lilly's day, to offer high-quality visitors' experiences, services, connections from their personal lives to our globalized world. And so we have advantages. But even so, I think we will have to be as creative and as innovative, as entrepreneurial, as earlier generations were, and maybe more so, if we want to avoid melting like an ice cube on an August sidewalk. Our award winners tonight provide our models as historical and cultural entrepreneurs, and I join in a hearty congratulations to each of them. Thank you very much.